another edition of Shattered Lives on the Inside Lens Network. Um, we're going to do things a little bit differently today. I'm This is Delilah Jones from Imagine Publicity and who sponsors the programming here on Inside Lens Network. And we're just a small boutique agency. We work with individuals, authors, nonprofits, um, in social media management, virtual assistants, whatever it is you don't want to do, don't know how to do online with your social media, we can help you out. So anyway, just a quick plug for the Inside Lens Network. It's a collection of podcasts. Most of them are issue-oriented programs um, on such shows like Crime Wire, Shattered Lives, which is this one, Imagine Publicity on Air, Writer's Tricks of the Trade, and we have Mob and Mafia Stories with over 700 episodes that you can binge on when you get a chance. It's really, there's something for everyone. So anyway, what we're doing today, the host of this show, as you know, is Donna Gore. And what we want to do today is discuss the second parole hearing of the person who murdered her father. And this is kind of the aftermath, and we're going to get into several different areas of discussion. But first of all, good morning, Donna. Good morning, um, Delilah. Thank you for doing yeah, this, by the way. Not? Oh, you're more than welcome. This this is this is a turnaround the tables because you're usually on this end of the discussion, but today is my turn. So. Mm-hmm. Let's just, we've got a lot of things to cover, a lot of information to cover. So let's just get right into it. And why don't you give the audience a brief overview of your own personal situation? Uh, With regard to the homicide? Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you start with that and briefly tell, you know, maybe someone out there is not aware of what happened to your family 37 years ago. Right, 37 years ago, April 17, 1981, my dad, um, who was 47 years old, um, was killed in a homicide by a multiple offender um, in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, the, the perpetrator had had a history of drug dealing, drug abuse, uh, bank robbery, and as it turns out, the um, direct killing homicide of my father as well as the accessory to murder um, of, a, of an accomplice one month later when they were in the commission of a, of a bank robbery. And um, also early on in his incarceration had gotten in trouble in prison and also had been involved in the attack and attempted murder of correction officers. So he has quite a resume of um, violent crime. And um, during, um, we we actually had um, a six and a half year wait uh, for our case to come to trial because he was incarcerated in the state of New Jersey for, for drug crimes. So that was another re-victimization, um, having to wait all that time. Another um, well, wasn't, was, isn't it true that it, when this all happened, and maybe after the trial and his sentencing, 
that your family was told he would never he would never be eligible for parole or get out, right? Yes, absolutely. The um, you know the uh, detectives and uh, people that were involved in solving the crime. There was no there was no question as to who had done it, and you know he was he was caught very fairly quickly. But um, in terms of matching up the evidence, and in fact, uh, what was uh, um, what uh, was kind of unusual was that um, sort of the cast of characters in both of these murders, because they were they were committed in the space of one month's time, they they were the same, and so they wanted to to get him very badly, and in in their due diligence, you know, they they told my mother that oh yeah, this guy's a really bad guy, and once we get him, he'll never get out. But at that time, the the laws in the state of Connecticut had what they call in, indeterminate sentencing, whereby you get a number um, of years and then they say two lives. Um, so it's indeterminate. And at that time, um, violent felons were actually eligible for parole, and um, which had its impact uh, right up to this very week um, in terms of um, impacting the ultimate outcome of the of the parole hearing, and so in the beginning, what had happened six and a half years later, when we had the trial, they were doing both both trials with one jury simultaneously, because the accessory to murder was actually a weaker case, and they wanted to shore it up so that he would get a better a better conviction per se. So um, initially, he was sentenced to 50 years to life to run concurrently with the second murder he committed a month later, um, with, and then with parole eligibility and good time provided up front, that was the deal that they had done. Thus, a 50 years became 26 years, and with the second with, uh, with, with the second sentence, 25 years to life for accessory to murder, was essentially canceled out. So this was a mathematical calculation and, a, you know, a, a very a, a harsh reality that was never really shared with us. We, we, did, not, we did not understand this. And, um, well, do, you feel really, like this, do you feel like this is, is a lot of, legal maneuvering, maybe, you know, some back-end deals that were made? Absolutely. And you obviously weren't shared with you or your family, right? Right, right. It, um, it, it, I know that, you know, I was, I was the daughter, so my, that all of the communication was relayed to my mother as, as the spouse, and although we were adult children, um, we, we certainly did have representation from a very good victim advocate who was very compassionate, but in terms of what was going on legally, um, we, we really had no, no cognizance of that. And, and my mother put her, her faith in these um, inspectors and detectives that what they, what they said um, held true. And as we know from our podcast five years ago, um, over five years ago, doing the podcast to prepare um, with Michelle Cruz, um, 
they should never, ever make those promises up front because it's a disservice to crime victims because you just never know what's going to happen. Exactly. So tell us what what happened five years ago. Uh, five five years ago, um, he because the the laws were still in effect that he became eligible for a parole hearing, and that was the initial one. Um, we you know we were summoned um, via notification. Um, and if anyone wants to read many of the details, there was a blog that I had done called Justice and Accountability. Um, it's available online. Um, and just about everything that could go wrong did go wrong in terms of the process and miscommunications, misunderstandings. Um, we almost did, didn't have um, a full uh, panel of uh, uh, parole hearing officers because one, one dropped out. Uh, and we, they, uh, when I protested very strongly, um, they suddenly found a third person because, as you know, it, in our state, it's the uh, majority rule in terms of the outcome. So if you have two parole uh, hearing officers um, and there's a tie, then, then um, you know, um, one says, to be let out and one one says to to stay in, then you know there there has to be some kind of a some kind of a tiebreaker. Um, so to have that third person is is, is very important. Um, to fast forward for for this present parole hearing, um, it was unanimous with three um, hearing officers uh, denying parole, which was. Wonderful. So last five years ago, he was denied his parole, and then this parole hearing comes up every five years, or, or you know, they they yeah. determine whether he's eligible for the parole. Yeah, it it appears that for um, for this inmate, and I think it's pretty much the same for many of our inmates. It, it, it's it's based upon a schedule. Um, once once the the process starts and it's part of their due process that they become eligible and then and I don't know if it's coincidental that it's just like a week after the 37th anniversary or just you know if it's uh, based upon the, the court calendar when they schedule it but it's it's you know like a week after the the anniversary and so um, so that they, puts you and your family through even more anniversary type trauma so to speak yeah. that you know you're you're remembering those dates internally even though you know it's something you'll never forget well let's let's come up to this particular parole hearing that just happened this past week explain explain and this I know is going to take a while because you have so many things that you had to do to prepare for this um, kind of go through what your process for preparation has been for this particular parole hearing. Right. Well, everyone may be familiar with the fact that it, it is your right to do a victim impact statement. And for most people, that is a very arduous process, and they dread it, and they're not sure where to begin and, and how to do it. For me, being a writer and having a passion for writing, um, 
that that is is less mature than most people. Um, but knowing the problems that we had over five years ago with with respect to only being notified, you know, a week before. And you know, almost canceling canceling the hearing, and uh, where where we happen to have um, the parole hearing in a town called Waterbury, Connecticut. Uh, they're all based in this one particular building, which is a, a fairly large city in the downtown area. There, there's also parking and uh, physical accessibility issues because I happen to be be disabled, so there were issues with regard to that. Um, and uh, also, we, we did have concerns with regard to victim anonymity. Um, over five years ago, we were told that um, you're, you, you have to identify yourself on the record, and it also you know, goes online to be able to name yourself um, on the record. And we we were victorious in in um, after a lot of hard work at that day at the hearing and afterwards to say no this is part of your crime victim rights to become protected and to know that I have somewhat of a national presence I didn't want to have to name myself um, for a number of reasons and also my family members to be protected so that they could not find out where we live because we know that prisoners have friends and and you don't want to breach that privacy um, because there's always that chance that you could um, that they could get out and they could retaliate so um, well you were able to make you were able to make some policy changes in in respect to all of that from the last parole hearing right right with with regard with regard to that we were negotiating that very day with the chairperson of the board of pardons and paroles to say, you know, no, this is, this is our right. We, we should not have to say our names on the record. And our, our attorney advocate at the time, Michelle Cruz, um, who was very skillful and very knowledgeable and also, you know, a victim herself. So she knows it from both ends of the spectrum. Um, she lobbied for that. And at the 11th hour, they agreed. So we were able to say on the record, you know, um, instead of we said victim number one or daughter or son or or spouse of the victim other than identifying ourselves by by name. And I have to say that I don't know if it was an oversight or um, some other reason, but this victory was not carried over publicly. And during during, um, this phase of preparation, and I started in January, um, I... um, I noticed that on the Constitutional Victim Advocates website, which is different from Office of Victim Services, there was no information with regard um, to that. So, well, Donna, were you, I, were you, when were you notified of this parole hearing coming up? How long ago? Well, typically, over five years ago, you were you were only given one week's notice by uh, by a rather generic letter. And I, I took it upon myself um, because I thought, well, maybe there's going to be some other issues like there were the last time. And I was also hoping that they had made strides in five years. 
So I took it upon myself to call the victim advocate uh, that was assigned, the same person, in January, knowing that this was coming up in April. And I said to her, um, and this is not a pers- uh, uh, an indictment of her personally. She's trying to do her job, but yet the way the system works, there are still glitches, there are still problems, there are things to work out. Uh, so I said to her, and I won't mention her name, but I said, you know, Sally wasn't her name. What what has changed in five years? And she said, well, the, we, you now get two two weeks notice, and um, uh, kind of off the. So victims are only given a couple of weeks notice to that this is going to come about, and so right. Typically, that's that's the only time you have to prepare yourself and make arrangements to be there, maybe take off work or, you know, go through all of the hoops to get there and and go through this. That that seems like a very, very short time. And, and you know, how important is it for victims' families to to stay on top of that like you did? You You made the effort to call four months ago, knowing this may or may not happen. I mean, you weren't notified that it was going to happen, but you kind of knew that it probably would. So, right. you know, how important is that for a victim's family to to jump ahead of the system like that? Um, I, I believe, and um, uh, as evidenced by other podcasts that I have done with Michelle with regard to victim impact, um, she has advocated that we we be notified as you know as as early as six months before, and I really agree with that. Um, but you know the the people that are in state government, they have a certain schedule, a certain bureaucracy, and they say, well, I initially called the Department of Corrections, who also have advocates there to see if the the, the person was on the on the docket, if he was coming up. For parole, and the thing that I really wanted to find out, there would be two differences: are they actually having a parole hearing, uh, is the or are they having an administrative review? And there, there, you know, are differences, important differences between that. And I, I verified um, and got legal legal um, advice to actually verify that. Um, and he was scheduled for a. A, a parole hearing, um, an administrative review is basically just the, the um, hearing officers are reviewing paperwork and looking at what what he's been doing over time to see if you know if there uh, what has transpired since the last time is there enough evidence so to speak that rises to the level that we should have a a public hearing. And the other very important difference is that in an administrative review, um, my understanding is that um, there is not um, any victim, direct victim input. So I was advised to, to, to actually make sure that if there was going to be some type of proceeding, that it be a parole hearing because um, we are not involved in in these administrative reviews. So I did, I did, I did find that out. And um, then another another right that we have as crime victims 
um, is um, to find out what the what the prisoner has done within certain parameters under the Federal Freedom of Information Act. You can find out um, information such as has the prisoner gotten gotten in trouble, in other words, been issued tickets or disciplinary um, actions for them. Have they been employed? Um, have they denied? Uh, what programs have they taken? Have they denied programs? Have they earned a salary? Where where has the salary gone? But um, you cannot find out certain things such as um, personal um, visits that they may have had. You cannot find out information about any medical information. Um, certain things that are that are kept private. Um, so what I did was I contacted my um, representative, my legislative representative, who it to to um, to my good fortune happens to be the speaker of the House of Representatives um, in the state of Connecticut, who is sort of the second in command in the Democratic Party here, and he wields a lot of power and influence. Um, so I contacted them, and I didn't know how arduous a process it would be to do the FOI. So I enlisted their help in crafting the questions and then passing it on to Freedom of Information um, in the, uh, officer in the Department of Corrections. And what I learned through that process is that um, no other, although they may have contact through the mail and email from people like reporters um, uh, and, and attorneys to find out information, to submit information, in terms of direct contact or going to their offices um, as a crime victim, um, I was the first person ever, at least in the 13-year history of this officer, no one else had ever approached them and said, I want to find out these questions and I want to have, have the answers and um, can I please have the records. So I was well, do you amazed think this at is that. A, do you think this is a, a, a service or a right of victims that they just don't know about? Absolutely, and that's that's another that's another issue. That's another thing that was not publicized. And again, I don't mean to call out personally the advocate. Uh, I mean, uh, but it's just it could have been an oversight. But I have to tell you that about a week before she accomplished the uh, the task of getting both victim anonymity information and the freedom of information onto her website, which I, I very much appreciated because I think the more information people have, the better. But it, along those lines, Delilah, just wanted to let you know that, you know, one of the pieces, short pieces that I wrote in my series of victim impacts that is still continuing, um, in, in our state, and I think in many states, um, you know, we have an overabundance of bureaucracy um, as compared to South Carolina, for example. And we have many entities, but they're all in different divisions, so to speak. So this constitutional victim advocate is appointed by the governor, and they look at cases, um, they examine and analyze cases to make sure that 
the constitutional rights had been upheld, or if there's some controversial nature or there's some problem that they can help a victim, that's what they do. And that person in that job is an attorney, and that's their job. Whereas kind of the hands-on grassroots, let's, let's give you direct services, whether it be counseling or victim compensation or monies for funeral expenses, um, to, to help you walk through the court process, to assign you a victim advocate, to, you know, to in, inform you about the process, all of those kinds of things in our state are handled through the judicial in, uh, division, and, and that's a different entity, and that's the Office of Victim Services. And then for you to go to the to, to try to get this Freedom of Information information, that's still an another department under the, the Department of Corrections. Um, and so you have, to, you have to go to them. And then to actually have your, you know, to, to hold your pardons hearing or your parole hearing, that is still another department under the, you know, the, the Board of Pardons and Parole. So, and, you know, the, and, uh, you know, your prosecutor is under the state's attorney's division. So these are all separate entities, Delilah. Well, and, you know, and, I, and I would venture to say that many people in the general public really don't even understand all the different entities within the state or federal government and how they, how they all work separately. Um, I mean, it's a. I don't know about you, but I didn't really do that well in government class in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I should have paid attention because well, you just never know when you're going to need that information. But I, I think, again, when people think of uh, the criminal justice system, that's it, the system. You know, how is the system working and how can I get it to work for me? So by breaking this all down the way that you have, I think is very helpful in um, explaining that, yes, there are several different entities, and no, they don't all work together. Am I right? No, and they don't, absolutely, and, 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 and they don't communicate. And it, it's not to say that every single um, case would need to have, you know, hands-on by every single entity, but there are those cases like ours is very unusual because this this perpetrator never should have been eligible for parole, and at certain points the other day in the proceedings, they weren't sure about a couple of the answers because this hadn't come up. So yes, um, this this touched all entities across the board, and one of the things that I, I can get into in more detail a little later in the podcast is that there should be, and I don't care if it's in Connecticut or whatever place, a one-stop shopping um, site that explains this because every every state operates differently and has different services. And, um, and even if you're not a crime victim, to, to be able to understand how your state government works, even to apply for a job, it was extremely daunting. It took me two years to become a, a, a state government employee, even with mentors and assistants. That's how complicated it was. It is now better. 
But what I'm saying is, so there's state government and their bureaucracy, and then there's criminal justice and how they deal with it. So it's very complex. And, you know, you almost have to be a Philadelphia lawyer um, to, to try to figure it out. So, again, I had an advantage of being a, 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 a state employee and working for 18 years and had an understanding of state government. So if you're just Joe Blow out there and you're a crime victim in our state or somewhere else and you don't understand how state government works, you're going to have a hard time. You know, so 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 that's that's another thing, you know. And, well, and especially um, when you're only given one or two weeks' notice to prepare. It's much too, yeah. It's it's not it's it's not adequate, you know. And so going back to your initial question as well, what else had changed? Well, um, they they had had video conferencing where the offender is there from his cell or from a conference room and then and then the offender's uh, family was in another in another place on video conferencing and we're we're in this room in the board of pardons and parole building um but this this time and i'm not sure exactly when they changed this somehow they didn't they opted not to do video conferencing and they actually had the perpetrators family and support system in the same building as us but separated on video conferencing so they were right there in the same building and they did make every effort to make sure that we never came in contact with with each other Um, but they're there in the same building watching our proceeding via video conferencing and I have to tell you that the public is also allowed to be in this much larger room with the perpetrator's family um, watching this as if you go to the movies, oh, let's go and take in a parole hearing. I just can't imagine that people would want to go and, and, and see this, but it's, it's the public's right to know. So if they get education through whatever uh, ever means possible, I guess there is sort of a, a positive aspect to that where people learn how, how these really, you know, take place. Um, and then well, you know, other- you, you bring up a you bring up an interesting point with the public's right to know. Um, I think the public probably has easier access to a lot of this than actually the victims do, because it's easier to find out the information than it is for a crime victim. Yeah, yeah, I I I think it de- it definitely is, and. Um, I don't know where you draw the line on that. I know that years ago when I used to do volunteer court escorting with survivors of homicide, the the courtroom frequently would be filled with a lot of maybe elderly retired people that had nothing much to do. So they would go and be able to sit and, and observe trials. It was kind of like their... I hate to use the word, but their entertainment for the day. You're, they oh, would yeah. some people may go in and watch. Now, I I would suspect I haven't you know been in a courtroom in a while that the security is much more difficult, and I don't know whether there is as much freedom to do that as there was years ago. But um, you know, so. So there's that, and then there's well, the, let's, um, let's swing it back to let's swing it back to you know the specifics of 
what you had to prepare for because, you know, in your situation, not only all of these entities that we've talked about and gathering the information that we've talked about and how difficult that was, you are also have a disability where sometimes mobility is an issue for you. Um, right. Tell the audience what what you discovered in, again, you are the advanced planner deluxe in my book. And so... <laughs> I, I know I know all of the things that you did to know if you could even get in the building. Um, tell, yeah. tell the audience what you discovered in your in your you know investigation into that end of it. Right. Well, just just to preface it, the 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 the, the paperwork we got for notification had no no victim advocate's name, no website, no time to report. No, no, it was so generic. So I was very upset about that. And then, okay, so with this one building, which is, I guess, owned by the by, by the Board of Pardons and Parole and was um, uh, grandfathered in under the ADA, don't exactly know how old the building is. It's, it's a building in, you know, good shape. It's not like a Victorian building falling down. But in terms of physical access, they did five or more years ago, they had a couple of handicapped parking spaces. And typically um, those spaces, maybe after 7 o'clock, are taken by, and I was told by disabled um, employees of, of that building. And to tell you the truth, one of the advocates that I work with um, I had forgotten, but they also had their own disability, and it is certainly their right to be able to to, to park. But th- so the only and and this is in a very busy downtown area in the center of the town with the green, and either you have to do metered parking, meter parking, and run out and feed the meter, or you have to find this um, underground parking lot and pay upwards of $12 for the day, and part of it is for employees, part of it is for 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 other people, and there there is no other provision made, or you may have to park in some of the city lots and walk through your, you know, walk three or four blocks carrying your stuff in, um, and technically speaking, I've been told by two attorneys that, you know, you could sue under the ADA, although um, the constitutional advocate disagreed with me. Our state has sovereign immunity from lawsuits, but I don't know if, if that carries over to federal suits under the ADA. So, you know, those were that those were other barriers. Um, along those same lines, in terms of um, uh, inaccessibility, the, um, the you know, there's several. Um, divisions and buildings for the Department of Correction in our state, just like there is any other state. Um, This one that is in a neighboring town to me um, used to be, it was sort of taken over, it was the Department of Transportation. I had made arrangements, and again, to let people know, if you're going to do this advanced preparation, you have to use all of your own personal time, vacation time from work. You're not getting reimbursed for any of this. So I did have to take my personal time to, to, to do a lot of these things. 
So I, I arranged to take a half a day after a lot of back and forth. We did try to arrange to have me go on a Saturday, but they said, nope, sorry, I'm a Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 kind of person. You have to come. So I said, okay. Um, and there was a glitch in the email communication. He never got it. Went over to the parking lot, which is like Swiss cheese. I never saw so many potholes in my life. Um, went to the visitor's area, no handicap parking, although they were in another area all clustered together. Went what I thought was a handicap ramp because it was braided up, you know, um, up the side, and I saw cement stairs, and then there was like a six-inch stair, and then, you know, a cement walkway, and then stairs, stairs, stairs. Got up to the top, there was crumbling cement, and with um, cones and crime scene tape. And in other words, don't, you know, don't proceed or be careful when you go up these steep stairs and then up to a courtyard and then got to figure out, well, which entrance do you go in? No, no um, signage to say, you know, here's the handicap entrance that you need to come in here. So absolutely dilapidated. Um, and no no cognizance if, if you happen to be a visitor that had a challenge. Had he known I was coming, um, he would have told me, well, I'll meet you and we'll go into this X entrance. It was built in the 60s, and so was the building where I work in, but compared to, to uh, you know, my building, my building or the outside is palatial. So I really don't understand. I wrote, I was asked by the deputy director to write an email, begged to write an email to our Department of Administrative Services that is the big HR function. They also are in charge of building maintenance, et cetera, and the, and the public information officer to say, this is an embarrassment. This is awful, and you need to do something about it. Um, so there's another, you know, a area where I, uh, the disability uh, is crossing over uh, crime victim rights here, and it really became an impediment for me, Delilah, in two different, two different ways. One, to be able to access, and and I have to make this point because this is one of the the major major um, accomplishments I'd like to have, and I think it's just a matter of can't or won't. Um, Initially, when I asked the supervisor of the Office of Victim Services, who I have to say tried her very best to advocate for me in a number of ways, but I think it's just lack of knowledge, lack of thinking out of the box. Um, I said, well, I, I don't want to have to deal with that building if it's inaccessible and I have no one. Initially, I thought I was going by myself and I, I had no one to help me. So... Um, they said, well, maybe, um, I said, can't we go to an office, an office of victim services that is more in line with the crime victim versus the rights of the offender? Oh, well, no, and I had a, a special meeting with these advocates in, at, um, you know, in Hartford, um, and they said, well, I don't know, I don't think that they're going to be amenable to that. Um, and, oh, well, what about video conferencing? Well, we don't use, we have a small screen, and we don't use those for court proceedings. And, oh, by the way, that's another division. So that's where that comes in. 
the silos, lack of communication, lack of cooperation. So I said, well, can you check? So another idea was that I could potentially go to a Harford or New Britain area because I live sort of on the line of New Britain courthouse if they gave permission and and if the courtroom was empty and if the technology was compatible with the technology from the Board of Pardons and Paroles, if all of that worked out, I could be standing in a courtroom um, looking at a screen and everybody else be at the Board of Pardons and Parole and holding up the picture of my dad and reading my statement. But ultimately, I decided against it. And you would say, well, why? Because it would be much more convenient, right? Well, two things. If you know anything about me, Delilah, and you know, you know I like to be directly part of the process. And for me to be there by myself and everybody else be down there, I said, no, that doesn't work for me. The other thing, my other real concern was, what if, I don't care what the IT guys said, they, they don't know if the systems are compatible. What if it started running and then all of a sudden it failed? And then the screen goes blank and I'm totally out of the process in the dark. I didn't want to take that chance. I, you know, I, I, I said this is so important. I wanted it to be, you know, I wanted to be there. So I was willing to go through all of those inconveniences uh, in order to be part of the process. So, um, I mean, I think it's something, it's something that we, we want to look into. I Just as an aside, if my legislator is still there in November because it's an election year, um, uh, they, they've offered to help write a proposal to introduce some of these things into legislation. And the other backup plan is that I'm planning to try to um, get other people on the other side of the aisle involved just in case these legislators and their assistants who may be appointed are not there any longer, uh, I don't want to have to start from scratch all over again. So exactly. that, that is right. It's a very important point to be able, if your crime happened in Harford County, you should be able to go to a Office of Victim Services uh, imagine driving, you know, an hour away and you're crying and you're nervous and you could potentially have a, a, a car accident, a wreck, because you're, you're so upset about this because you have to go down to this one building. They deem it, you know, God's, God's answer. And, and one of the rationales they gave me was that they couldn't do it, was that in years past, the Board of Pardons and the parole hearing officers were essentially retired part-time people, but now they become full-time employees, and you know they they maybe would have to travel with their documents and account for time or travel. Well, excuse me, this it, it should be the convenience of the of the of victim's family, not of the state yeah. employees who are getting Absolutely. paid. Absolutely, well, and right? you know, this this brings us to a point before we run out of time. I would like for you to, you know, with with all of the, what you have just said as far as explaining your experience, not only as a crime victim but a person with a disability and what you've had to go through to to um, 
attend this hearing and also to make sure that this guy didn't get back out of jail um, or prison. Let's go into another aspect of this. What type of things do you feel are necessary to put into place as solutions so that in the next five years, if you have to go through all of this again, and and also for all of the other families out there that will have to go through it, what do you feel are some solutions to to these barriers that you've had to cross? Okay, well, I I made kind of a laundry list of them, and yeah, and um, I I think I think a lot of them are 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 very workable. A lot of them maybe don't necessarily cost a lot of money because our our state is in dire financial straits, but I think it just takes a little creativity. And just to let people know, the outcome officially was that he was denied parole. Um, Just to give you a little taste there, it it was a little different in terms of he, the perpetrator appeared more prepared. He had a prepared statement. Um, He appeared somewhat contrite somewhat remorseful, had taken programs, had, you know, gotten his GED, had six six members of his family there. But with all that said and his record, and due to the the fact that had it been two months later that he committed my father's murder, he never, ever would have been um, eligible for parole. They took all this into consideration. And the fact that I think they were very impressed by my mother's initial victim impact statement that was read from five years ago and the one that I did, he was denied. Long story short is what they're going to do is they're going to do an administrative, quote-unquote, paperwork review in five years and then determine whether or not there should be a discretionary um, parole hearing. Um, you know, they they just you know they just didn't think that it was appropriate to let this man out, and we were so 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 very relieved. And especially for my mom, I can't tell you um, what an impact it, it it is for somebody that's nearly eighty five years old. And you know, it, it just well, if, um, you know, you you were able to create a victory for through all of this that you have done for your family. And I think, you know, that's that's your legacy to your family, what you've been able to do um, because of your tenacity. I, I guess. Um, yeah, and I'm very proud of that. And I'm, I'm, I'm very proud. My brother ended up coming, and, and um, he did a good job, too, and he was impressed with what I did. So that was that that meant a lot to me. But so going back to your initial uh, question regarding ideas, and again, all of these may not be workable, but I, I think they definitely are. And I'm willing to work with whoever on these. It, you know, to me, it doesn't stop here. It, it's about helping other people. That's what my, my dad would have wanted, I think. Okay, communicate, collaborate, and cooperate. Um, what I made reference to, all of these entities should have like a protocol, one, two, three, four, to mandate sharing sharing in all areas if needed, um, all of those entities that I talked about, to try to create a seamless, as seamless a process as possible for, for all victim families. 
not all people are internet savvy, but there's got to be a representative in your family that is. And if they frequently you can't get through to these people or they're not giving you the answers or they're delaying, if you had a a one um a a a, 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 a people who were willing to create uh, create communication across all of these entities. Um, it would be so much easier. Okay, another one is to, like I had said, create alternate locations other than this one building where we always do it because that's what we have always done in the past. That doesn't wash with me. Even if I didn't have a disability, I would still say, you know what, you need, this is 2018, you need to move this out of this building. You know, someone's coming from Massachusetts, someone's coming from Rhode Island, wherever it is, we need to make it more convenient. So have video conferencing for parole hearings at the convenience of victims. Mandate um, that restitution for all felons or, you know, um, violent offenders in the form of contributing a portion of their pay or their commissary allotments uh, to the victim's family directly if they want it or victim compensation fund. I was told by the FOI officer that never in in his knowledge or history of working there has any of their salaries um, been contributed to such a fund, and I think that's horrible. Granted, most prisoners, I learned, make $0.75 cents to $1.75 per day. But some of the families, there was one particular person he said had $2,700 in his account. The family was rich. Take some of that money, mandate the 25% of the salary or whatever their allotment. If they get $50 a month to buy candy in the commissary or cigarettes or whatever it is, mandate that a certain percentage go to victims. Create a one-stop shopping website, similar to what I was saying earlier, explaining the different entities with with uh, phone numbers and, and links so that everyone can understand what to do and who to contact. Um, let's see. If you can't create convenient parking for all victim family members, whether they're disabled or not, why not have a valet service? I asked the advocate, well, can I pull up in front where the buses are, and could you have somebody take my car and bring it to the bring it down to the parking lot? It would be so much easier for me. No, we can't do that. She said, "Why not? Why not? I I don't understand." Clarify the issues surrounding victim notification. Um, when do we get notified? Are we registered with all entities? There is the um, uh, victim information network, and there's also a notification for Department of Corrections. Are they connected? No, not in this state. Are we um, are we notified when they are released to a halfway house or a community at large? What what's what's the oversight and how long? Um, in our particular case, I learned that because this man had indeterminate sentencing, they they had no idea when the end date for parole would be for him because of the nature of his sentence. You know, a 50 years to life is is a rare event. Um, for for someone with parole eligibility. So they didn't know those answers. Um, typically, uh, it's my understanding, they get one or two years oversight 
or pro parole or probation. And another very important point that I learned, thank you, Jessica Pisano from Survivors of Homicide, there is such a thing as a victim, uh, a violent offender registry program, similar to um, the sexual offenders registry in some states, where if they if they are allowed to be in the community, they have to register with this registry. They're tracked, and 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 they and uh, you're you're able to keep track of, of of what's going on with them. My understanding is a couple of the best um, programs to date are from the, the state of Montana and and Kansas. So those are those, uh, and in addition to creating a more content based victim notification letter other than the one we got and to give us much more time, maybe as, as much as, I don't know if they could do it six months in advance, but they certainly could do it three three or four months like I started planning. So Delilah, those are some of the ideas that I have, um, you know, for creating a better, a better process, you know. So um, I was able to address some of the process issues after I read my impact statement, because I wanted to let people know that you know you want to have the focus of your 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 um, time um, speaking to the hearing officers about the victim. They don't get a lot of information about about the victim other than the circumstances of the crime. Typically, those things are negative. They don't know positive things about your loved one. So you want to create a picture of who this person really was and what the impact was. But then I chose my opportunity to go into some of these things because I didn't know if I would ever have the chance and wanted to let them know that our system here in Connecticut is broken. Absolutely, and I think, too, that education and educational information is something, in my opinion, that would be very simple to do, very simple to create. And like you say, on a website where everyone has access to it so that they have a step-by-step guideline even um, as to what their rights are. In, in a parole hearing or even during trial, I think a lot of victims' families, of course, they're they're not in an emotion, they're not in a mental state to, to understand all of this. Um, so I think that would be more and more than helpful. Just to, I agree, just to and get educated. Yeah, and and you make a very good point because. Here I am, 37 years down down the road, and I had 37 years experience in working with crime victims. And look at all the problems I encountered. Imagine somebody who's never had any any um, access with the criminal justice system and, and has, had, has lost a loved one through a, a homicide, you know, violent homicide, and are just beside themselves and can barely get out of the bed. There's no way that they could do what I'm doing. And just let me make it clear. It's, I'm There's not, no way a I've, lot of people can do what you do. I mean, you you <laughs> have this this special knack or this tenacity that once you, you know, get on to something, you don't go. And, go. and, and I think the, the people out there in Connecticut state government need to know that. <laughs> I, well, I think they found out. Be forewarned. And, and once, you know, once certain things are – 
our, our public. I mean, I'm not out to get any person or to fault any no. person because it's systematic. But what if they do anything positive? I I seek those opportunities to praise them, and I, and I have. But I will call them out on not trying to help make things better, and and to and to listen and to listen to my uh, suggestions, and and to try to implement to the best of their ability because that that is what we have to do. But don't feel as if you have to do what I do because I. I know I'm sort of not in the middle of that bell curve. I'm on the, I'm on the extreme. But if you can take some of this information and just – and don't think that if you're listening in South Carolina or you're listening in Alaska or wherever in California, you're going to have similar problems. But it, it's maybe your, your path will be a little smoother, but you are going to have those delays. You are going to have miscommunications. You are going to have – and you have to find the right people to trust to guide you through the process, and that that may take a lot of doing. So, well, one thing that I would like you to do, I, w- I would like to announce actually that you you actually offer a victim impact writing service, and I think that is such an important service for people that are going through the system, especially for the first time. Um, it, people don't know what to say. They don't know how to say it. They're they're so, they're so emotionally charged that a lot of it may just come out as as anger or fear or or passion or you know whatever emotion is bubbling over at that particular time for them. And I think what you've done is is by creating this service is a definite service for any victim in any state out there um, that needs to to make sure that the, the voice of the victim is heard and it's heard in a professional way that will make an impact on the sentencing of the person who's found guilty because it's in the sentencing process that this is read. Am I correct in that, Donna? Uh, I'm sorry, ask your question again. What, what's your question? When, like during a trial, let's say like in in your father's murder trial, is it yep. during the sentencing phase that the victim impact statement is yes. given? Okay, yes. so it's after it's, that yes. person has already been found guilty. So they're already guilty. We all know that the jury has has come back with their verdict, and that's the time when you get to you get to have a voice as to what type of a sentence this person might get. And as most families would tell you, they don't want a slap on the wrist. Right. And, and, and so too, like what we did, you know, in the, in the, in the parole hearing. And also you have to remember there are people that are pardoned and this process applies to, you know, pardons hearings as well. And you also have the, that right during a pardon Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're out of time. Can you believe that? <laughs> I know. We needed another hour here. Maybe we'll have to do a follow-up or something. Well, maybe but, maybe you can come back and do this again sometime. <laughs> well, yes, I, I agree with you. I, I mean, we can break it down, and, and I'm sure you'll be writing about it. Go to DonnaGore.com. And um, look at all the information there. I mean, Donna, I've got to 
really give you credit for the years and years of advocacy that you've done, not just for your family and yourself, but for the hundreds and hundreds of other victims and families that have gone through the same thing. So we're going well, to close you, out the show. Oh, you're welcome. Labor, I just want to say I just want to say at the at the close of this that you know I think we had a we had a few problems. The quality of the audio is not as good as normal, but hopefully you will get the gist of everything that we've had to talk about here. And I also want to let the listeners know that some of the podcasts on the Inside Lens Network highlight criminal cases, some which are still in open investigations, but. Our intent is to allow families to present information for consideration by you, the listener. Our podcasts and hosts in no way represent the guests. We don't claim to solve cases, nor do we wish to jeopardize any open investigations. Our guests present their own information, and while we might suggest resources and assistance, we're not liable for their actions. So just let that to be, wanted that to be known. Um, But I hope that everyone who's listening today will join the next episode of Shattered Lives. As always, there is going to be a lot of good information imparted and expert guests and the host, Donna Gore. So stay safe out there, everybody, and be kind to each other. Yes. Thank you, everyone. Have a good day.